I hope that you're getting some good things out of the book of Mark that we've been, this series has been interrupted. I know I've said that a number of times probably, but it's been interrupted enough, but it, it's such uh, an incredible book, um, and I hope that we've been um, just encouraged by some of the things that we're seeing. I, I want to invite you to open your Bibles if, you're, if you would. We're going to actually look at uh, Mark chapter 8, uh, 9, and 10 today. Uh, we're not going to read all of that, but... Um, if you want to look at Mark chapter 8, and we're going to look at, first of all, starting with verse number 22, it's just, this here is just a fascinating, fascinating text to me. Uh, I know that, that I say that a lot, so you, you, you probably think that I'm, I think that all of them are fascinating, and, um, and, and, and a lot of them are, and, and, well, they all are, I guess, but this one here really is, is quite interesting, and it's just, it's just an, an interesting development that, that, that occurs in this text if you look at from chapter 8 of Mark all the way to chapter 10 and and I want you to look at uh, verse number 22 and of chapter 8 there and we'll start right there for just a minute. Um, Mark chapter 8 verse 22. They came to Bethsaida and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village when he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and he said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. And then his eyes were open and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, Don't go into the village. I don't know if you notice anything here that is really unusual about this text, do you? I, I mean, this, uh, this really here um, comes across almost as if Jesus failed, I think, doesn't it? I mean, he, he had to do it twice. That's the only, this is the only miracle in all of the Gospels where the act of Jesus doesn't heal a person on first touch or first word. But I think it's such an odd sort of thing, then you have to ask yourself the question, did he fail? Well, that's one of the options, right? But frankly, since Jesus never failed at anything that he ever did, I, I don't think that that's it. In which case, I think that only leaves us with one other alternative, and that is that Jesus did this on purpose. And he healed this man in two stages for some peculiar reason. And I find myself kind of wrestling with that question, you know, why well, why did he do that? You know, maybe the context, I think, could help. If you, if you just think back just a little bit, if you maybe uh, um, we've already looked at chapter 7, um, but remember in chapter 7, verses 31 through 36, there's this, there's this healing of this deaf mute, and everybody is just totally amazed because nobody has ever seen anybody do that kind of thing. And then you come to chapter 8 and, and the first 13 verses and Jesus feeds the 4,000. There's uh, seven loaves of bread that are left over. And then the very next paragraph, he gives this warning to his disciples. He says, be careful of the yeast of the Pharisees. And the disciples are going, he must be talking about bread. And in verse 21 of chapter 8, he says, he, he says about them, he says, do you not yet understand? And then he heals this blind man in two stages. Now, can you just put that on hold for, for a few minutes? I don't want you to forget that. 
but put that on hold. Can I interrupt our train of thought just for a second because there's some other things that I would really, I think that would be really important for us to notice before we come back to that story. So the story is about what? Somebody tell me. The one we just read. The blind man that he healed in Bethsaida in two stages. Okay. So hold that thought. And then we'll, we'll, we'll move on. We're going to come back to that story. In fact, let's just go on a little bit further in Mark's Gospel. If you want to notice verse number 27 right after the healing, we finally get to the thing, I think, that seems to be the thing that Jesus is really, he's been driving at since the very beginning, since the beginning of this guy's. But look at verse number 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the, chief, by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, we're, we're going to come back to this text and look at it in detail next week, but I want you to notice what happens. Peter offers the very thing that Jesus has been looking for this entire part of the Gospel of Mark. He has been preparing them for this one fundamental question, who am I? Jesus gets the question out, and Peter immediately, he gives the answer that everybody's looking for. You are the one that was sent from God, and you're ready. And everybody's just kind of getting ready to go, yeah, that's the right one. That's the right answer. You got it right. And then Jesus says, I'm going to, uh, um, by the way, I'm going to be killed, and then I'm going to rise again. And you can almost, if you just use your imagination, you can almost see the look on Peter's face. You can almost see it change. And he says, in essence, to Jesus, no, you're not. The word is in, is in the text. He, he rebuked him. It's, it's, it, it, it's, a, it's a strong word, and it, it just means that he got right up in Jesus' face, and he said, that's not, or no, that's not what you're going to do. Rebuke. See, sometimes we reject the message. Isn't that interesting? We don't like what we hear, and so we simply turn it off. Jesus said, this is what I'm going to do. And Peter said, I don't like the sound of that, and so no, you're not. See, I think we all ought to have the option of rejecting what we don't want to hear. Well, sometimes actually we do that, don't we? We hear what we don't like in the text, and we just simply turn it off. And, well, the phrase sounds a lot like this, whether you verbalize it or not in quite this way. This is what it sounds like. Well, I know what the Bible says, but... I mean, it's that reconciliation text, right? You know, um, you know when it says, you know, if you, if you think your brother has something against you, leave your gift, go first and reconcile things with your brother before you come to the altar. And you say, 
well, that's really nice, but, but I don't like that text, you know? Re reconciliation, by the way, it's a big word. We know what reconcile means. It's, but reconciliation is actually central to the Christian message. It's, it's central to... to I, I was just explaining that to somebody this past week, uh, um, that, that if, 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 if we don't get reconciliation right with each other as a body of Christ we won't really fully understand the message of the gospel. I, I mean, if, if we cannot reconcile our differences, how can we fully understand what God has done for us in Christ? I mean, it's that 2 Corinthians chapter 5 passage, you know, where after Jesus says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come, right? And then the very next verse he says, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and get the next part, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sin against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. That, see, that's what we're to be about. Uh, sometimes that's hard, but if we get it right, if we work hard to get along in the body of Christ, we will have a better opportunity to help people understand what the message of Jesus is. I remember this like it was yesterday. Um, it, it was kind of odd, but it was, it was the right thing. And uh, one of my elders shared a communion meditation uh, using that reconciliation text. Uh, you know, first things, uh, first reconcile things with your brother uh, before you come to the altar. And so he shared this beautiful, beautiful meditation. And anyway, he finished that, that meditation and and we were all sitting there waiting for the communion uh, trays to be passed. And all of a sudden, this guy got up, and he made a beeline for the other side of the room. And it's kind of like, you know, you, I, you're just kind of sitting there and kind of watching all this happen. No, no real commotion or anything like that. But he gets up, walks straight to this other fellow, and starts to kind of whisper some things. And pretty soon, there was a, some handshakes and some pats on the back. And there was a little bit of, you know, quiet conversation that was going on. And... And uh, all of a sudden, it just became apparent. Well, and I know because I talked to the person later on, but they were wrestling with this reconciliation at a time that was very difficult for them. And it would have been easier for them just to reject it because, you see, sometimes we reject the truth. You come a little bit later in the chapter, well, actually, chapter 9. Uh, come over to chapter 9, verse number 30. Now, we're... We'll go back and we'll pick some of this up. But Peter, James, and John, and Jesus have been on the mountain of transfiguration. And now they've, they've come down uh, the mountain and there's been this little boy who needed to, to be healed from a demon. Jesus takes care of that and that's where we are in the story. And so if you look at verse number 30, it says that they left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. Uh, Jesus just makes this announcement, betrayed, killed, rise again. They don't know what he's talking about, and they don't want to ask. Because he, sometimes we simply get confused. We just don't get it. I remember this couple that came to our church at, at um, 
where, where I was serving at the time, and, and they wanted to get married. And, and he, uh, he actually was already had, was a Christian, and, um, but she had never given her life to Christ. And, and so we, we talked about that whole thing in premarital counseling and, and how important it was for Christ to be the center of their marriage. And we, we went through that in, in some, some great detail. We talk, I shared the gospel with him. They, they both responded positively. In fact, they, they both began to, they continued to attend church and they became very involved in our ministry. And, and all the time she was indicating, and it was just, it was, a, it was kind of a neat process as you kind of look at it, but it was kind of a confusing process. But she was very interested in this and, and, and very talkative about this and indicating that that, that that was something she wanted to do, yet, you know, is give her life to Christ. And yet she never made, quite made that commitment. She just didn't do that. And so we talked some more and she indicated that, well, you know, she said, you know, I'd really like to wait until after our wedding. I'm so like, okay, yeah, that's fine. And, and so anyway, the, the wedding came and, and the wedding went. And, and, and then they found out that they were pregnant. And, and so uh, we talked some more and she said that she wanted to wait until after the baby was born before she would actually make that step and give her life to Christ. But, but then, you know, as you know, I, you've heard this story from me, I think, before. Baby was born, um, nothing happened. And so... You know, that went on for quite some time, and I, I thought, boy, that's really kind of odd. And I'm, I was really kind of confused because she was just so excited about this. And so we had this conversation, and I, I just said to her, I just said, I, I don't get it. I, I really don't. And she just said, she says, you know what, I really, really love Jesus. She says, but here's the truth. I am so afraid. I'm so afraid that if I give my life to Jesus, that I'm just going to go and mess it up, and then people are going to look at me, and they're going to say, you know, what a hypocrite. Look at that person there. And I went, wow. Of course, right? After you, after you give your life to, fully to Jesus Christ, I mean, of course you're going to mess it up. How many of you guys have ever messed it up? Okay? Um, of course that, but, but that doesn't make you a hypocrite. Now, you need to hear me on that. That doesn't make you a hypocrite. That makes you human, right? See, because a hypocrite, those are people who play the game, who claim to never mess it up. That's what a hypocrite is. And she looked at me and she says, like, you've got to be kidding here all this time? And, and, and we baptized her the next Sunday. <laughs> See, she just needed to be, get past the confusion. Now, of course, some people... It's not just that they're confused. They're kind of like the disciples. You notice they, they didn't want to ask. See, some people in their confusion, they also don't want to know. That was this guy that I met with for discipleship every week. And uh, I think we met at McDonald's. And not the best choice of places to go, you know. I mean, talking about spiritual discipline over a greasy uh, Egg McMuffin. Um, but he says to me one day, we were, had been meeting, and he says, I'm not going to read my Bible anymore. I said, okay, how come? He said, well, you know, because every time I read my Bible, I, I, I find something in there that I'm not doing, and I, I kind of like my life the way it is, and if I keep reading my Bible, I'm, I'm going to have to change, and I don't want to change, and, and so I'm not reading it anymore. I just, just wanted you to know. I said, Okay. But then we came back next week to the same greasy place and eating a greasy egg McMuffin together. And he just said, you know, I just couldn't do that. And I said, I know you couldn't. 
Um, he says, I, ha I have to read my Bible. But I, I think about that, and, and, and I don't know what he was trying to point. I still don't know what he was trying to get at. Um, I figured he was probably, I, I, guess I, I guess I don't know. But aren't we sometimes like that, though? I mean, we don't know the answer, but yet we really don't want to know the answer, so we just don't look. Well, I want you to come another chapter over to chapter 10. This, is, uh, this actually comes right after the comments that he makes about the rich young ruler. Uh, do you remember the first story that we're hanging on to still, right? We're hanging on to that one. Okay? Um, but this comes after some comments that he makes about the rich young ruler. Jesus picks up this language of the wealth, of following Jesus, you know, where everybody who has left their houses and lands and friends and all that kind of stuff will receive a hundred times as much if they follow Jesus. But look at verse number 32. It says that they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen. We are going to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later he will rise. It, it really doesn't get any more explicit than that. This is the third time, right? We've already read this three times already. Chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. This same thing. He lays it out. This is exactly what's going to happen to me in a matter of days. And, and, and look at what they want to know in the, in the next verse. Look at this. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. You kind of feel like the, 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 the record player just kind of suddenly stops. You just want to go, right? It just went right over their heads, right? He just got done being as explicit as he possibly could be, and they want to know, right, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? And you just wonder, where are these guys? Because, you see, I, I, I think sometimes we, we just get distracted, you know? We get caught up in all the wrong stuff. They're thinking about prominence, and he's thinking about suffering. And I, that, that's really not hard to do. It's easy for people to get up in the wrong, get caught up in the wrong stuff. I, I sometimes wonder what we get distracted by. I, I actually wanted to do something, but I thought it might be a distraction if I did it. But I'll tell you what I was going to do. I, I actually was going to get everybody to stand up and walk over to the window and open up the drapes and everybody look out. That's what I wanted to do, okay? Um, you probably think that sounds kind of strange if we all kind of got up. So I want you mentally to stand up and stay where you said, but mentally stand up and walk over to the window. We're opening the drapes. We're looking outside. I wanted you to have that mental image um, of, of doing that. And even if it kind of strange, it sounds kind of strange. But here's what I was really thinking about is that I wanted us to have that visual, that visual of, of looking out the window. And, you know, because, you know, we're a fairly young congregation, and, and, and I got this image of people who, you know, walking up to our images, or, or up to our windows after, you know, we first started, and, and, you know, from the outside looking in, you know, because people want to, you know, they just wonder, you know, how's it going in there? 
I don't know the people actually do that or they did that, or, you know, but I'm, I'm not sure. I'm probably not. But the reason why I decided, and so, so the reason that I decided not to do that, though, is, is that I thought that that in, it might, in itself might be a distraction, that we lose sight of what I was wanting us to see, which is this. Oftentimes, I think it's easy to focus what's on what's going on inside this building than it is on what's important. Or I mean, as if this building is what's important, I mean. And yet this building, our building here, how long have we owned this? 2013. This, I think, 2013, September 6th of 2013. This building is nothing more for a tool for us to use to look outside into the world, to wonder what's going on out there, that God can use this church um, and to use us in order for him to accomplish his mission. You know, because sometimes we get distracted. We get caught up thinking about the wrong stuff, and, and, and some of that stuff isn't bad stuff. But sometimes we get distracted by stuff. Three times Jesus predicts his death each time just a little bit more explicit than the last time. And every time he announced it, they missed the point. Do you remember our story of the blind man? Can we come back to that story? Jesus touched him twice. Twice. Now I wonder why that could be. Why did he do that? Could it be that Jesus is willing to work with us until we can see. Is it possible that what he's doing, couched in the context of all of that spiritual blindness, is saying, I refuse to give up. I refuse to give up. I refuse. Do you know what they call that second touch? Anybody? They call that grace. When you, when, when you are not left just because you failed to see the first time, Jesus See, Jesus longs for us to see, and, and, and if he has to touch it twice or three times or four times, in my case, probably ten times, but he's willing. And, and can, I ask you, can I ask you to look at just one more story that kind of wraps this whole thing up? Go, go, go back to the end of chapter 10. It's, it's really rather intriguing the way that this, this whole big, long section ends. Um, verse number 46 um, then they came to Jericho, as Jesus and his disciples, to, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city. A blind man, blind man, Bartimaeus, that is the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. Now listen to this. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Does it not fascinate you? that this whole story starts with the healing of a blind man, 
And it ends with the healing of a blind man. And all the way in between is the disciples. Uh, they are as blind as a proverbial bat. Does that not fascinate you? And yet just Jesus indicates, he says, I will stay with you. I will stay with you. I will stay with you until you can see. Now, why is that? Because he longs for us to see. He longs for us to be whole. He wants us to be in a relationship with him. With him. He, he does not turn us away simply because we are blind and don't see it the first time. He will come back to us again and again and again until we finally get it. That's grace. So the question is, do you get it? Has it become clear to you that more than anything else in all the world that God wants a relationship with you through his son Jesus and he's willing to work with you no matter what you've done, no matter what, where you've been, that is what we call grace. That message will preach out there. Absolutely that amazing grace that allows us in our blindness to be invited back to Jesus. I love hearing that. But did you notice what this man did? He just threw his cloak aside and, and, and he followed Jesus. Now, that really, that may not mean a whole lot to us. But see, a Jewish man's coat was everything that he had. It was his blanket. It was his coat. It was his bed. The man was probably sitting on it when he got up to see Jesus and he walked away and he left the most important thing in his life in order to follow. See, that's what Jesus calls us to each and every week, every single day. Jesus calls us the, to, to, to be willing to walk away from the, most, the, the, the things that are most important to us, whatever that, those things happen to be, and just say yes, yes to him. See, see, the grace of God says this, come walk with me. Don't be blind anymore. Let's pray together. Father, we admit it that sometimes we don't see. We don't see the things that you have put right in front of us. And Father, uh, not to sound punished, but in the words of the song, that uh, the old hymn, open our eyes that we might see, that we might walk daily closer to Jesus, that we might choose the things that, that you care about, that we might pray for the things that you care about, that we might walk in the ways and think in, think in ways that are most important to you. And Father, the most important, just to be willing, to be willing to walk away from things that we deem as important in order to follow you. We pray that you would convict us of that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.